Now I'm the king of the swingers, oh, the jungle VIP. I've reached the top and had to stop, and that's what's bothering me. I want to be a man, man cub, and stroll right into town. And be just like the other men, I'm tired of mugging around. Oh, ooby-doo, I want to be like you. I want to walk like you, talk like you, too. You'll see it's true. And they like me.
I Want to Be Like You, The Monkey Song by Louis Prima. And that was the first track, ladies and gentlemen, of uh, my dearest John Shapos, who... Yeah, I should clarify, I'm claiming neither to be the jungle VIP or the king of the swingers. <laughs> so, uh, John is... Uh, uh, after a whole year back in the studio on the Art Hour and Soho Radio, and this time not as my co-presenter, but uh, as my guest. And John will talk uh, to us uh, today about um, uh, the role he has in the uh, legal firm he's working for <laughs> and uh, the role of the uh, director of uh, the arts program of the Simmons and Simmons collection. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, John. So let's let's start from uh, what is Simmons and Simmons and what is their collection in, okay. in brief. Okay, so my marketing department would like me to say that Simmons and Simmons is a leading international law firm. Um, but the thing that I'm probably best known for in relation to Simmons and Simmons is not my day job as an IP lawyer. It's the thing I do in the margins as being the face of Simmons and Simmons art. So I am the chair of an internal art network, um, an internal interest group that thinks about our collection and the wider art world. Um, and I have responsibilities to do with placing the art collection in the London office and 15 other offices around the world. So it's like being the director of a small museum on an unpaid basis. <laughs> right. So uh, Simmons & Simmons is an international law firm and you have around 15 offices, as I understand, around the world, yeah. including from my little study in the Netherlands, China, Italy, Singapore, Germany, Luxembourg, France. Yeah. Correct? And uh, when did this art collection start, John? So we had a corporate partner in the late 80s who had the visionary idea that rather than choosing a new decorative scheme when the firm moved buildings, what we should do is paint the walls white, spend a modest budget on contemporary art, and use that as a point of differentiation between us and other city law firms. Because it's actually quite a recent thing for it to be obvious that every corporate collection will have contemporary art. Um, so back then, we had the sort of thing that any city law firm had. We had 18th century coaching and hunting and fishing prints and seascapes. And this, that's what people did. Um, and there was no international art market in London at the time. There was no Tate Modern, of course. And so the idea of contemporary art anywhere... What is this time you're talking about? In, in the late 80s, so about, mm -hmm. about 1989. And so Stuart Evans... Um, managed just about to persuade his fellow partners of what he wanted to do. And we were very much in the right place at the right time, because even with a small budget in the early 90s in London, um, of course, that was the start of the era of the young British artists, the YBAs. And so even with that small budget, those gallerists starting up in the early 90s, so Thomas Dane and Jay Dropling at White Cube and Victoria Miro, they were very pleased to see Stuart. And... Um, and he's always a guy that bought as much with his ears as with his eyes. And so he knew very much how to listen to those people. And even with that modest budget, built something that is, uh, is, is truly impressive. So, you know, a dozen Turner Prize winners, a couple of dozen more nominees, and an, a collection that is one of international standing. 
So how many artworks uh, does this collection have, more or less, John, if this is an answer you, you could possibly yeah, tell? Yeah, it's about, it's about, it's somewhere between 550 and 600. Which is spread all around the world. Spread over, um, not all of our offices, we've got 22 offices, I think, but there's art in 15 of them. Um, and those offices that do have it, you know, it's a serious part of the visual identity of the firm. So if you if you go to anywhere, to, you know, to Milan or even to Dubai, then you'll you'll notice that you're in a place that doesn't have corporate decorating. It has an art collection. Mm-hmm. So it's the same collection rotating, or each branch has its own kind of collection regarding to re- re- responding to the uh, local. Uh, culture, local environment. So do you have another collection in China? Well, it's very much a central collection. Um, and the, the collecting rubric of the firm is that we buy significant works by early career artists who work where we do. So that isn't bound by age or nationality. It's it's artists who work within the footprint of the firm, so where we have offices. So what this means in practice is that most offices will have a hang that is um, half composed of the YBAs from the original London collecting and a few things that we've bought by artists working locally. So, you know, it could be Germany, it could be Singapore, it could be wherever. Okay, let's go to... uh Before we go to the second track, why did you uh, choose the, the Monkey Song, John? <laughs> the Monkey Song, so... Why did I choose the monkey song? Well, I'm a huge Disney fan and I was very tempted just to choose six Disney songs for you to listen to today. I That goes back a long way. When I was a teenager at school, I worked part-time at the Disney store and so I have the lyrics of all Disney songs pre-2003, whenever it was, burned into my memory. And the... Uh, Yeah, that the Jungle Book is one of my favorites and indeed was the song I was singing when I first met my wife. So there's a, there's an autobiographical note to it as well. <laughs> okay, let's get to the second one and back with uh, John Chappell's and Simons and Simons collection. <laughs> And your shoes get so hot, you wish your tired feet were fireproof. Another boardwalk People walking above Another 
back in on the art hour with uh, John Sharples from the Simmons and Simmons collection and um John, you were saying that the collection, uh, you, you mainly focus, you, you have a low budget when collecting. And we know that contemporary market can skyrocket prices. And we'll go, we're going to go uh, later into this. But what is your uh, estimate annual budget uh, for purchasing uh, art? <laughs> okay, well, I mean, uh, I wasn't expecting to tell you this, but it's no great secret. So the, the, our budget is the same as what it always has been, which is around... Thirty thousand pounds in a year, um, and that's if that's if we're not opening an office or something. So sometimes it can be a bit more uh, if there's a special new building opening or something. Um, but that's been roughly the budget since the early '90s, and of course, whilst our budget hasn't changed, the art market has changed beyond all recognition in that time. And so, so yes, with thirty thousand back then, you could buy. Lots of work. Yeah, you could do some, you could do some damage with thirty thousand back then. So, but the, now, know, I mean, uh, perhaps you could buy five works. We bought we bought a from ma- graduate shows. We bought a major Peter Doig from Victoria Muro in nineteen ninety five that had been included in his nineteen ninety one Whitechapel show um, for five thousand pounds. And so, you know, these days that buys you a, a work from a degree show, not the work of a painter who's had you know, museum shows already and a clear upward trajectory. So that that's the difference in practice. A lot of what we buy now is even earlier in the artist's career. Are you considering of adapting the budget of the company to the new uh, requirements? Um, not really, because the discipline of having that budget, I think, has served us very well over the years. Um, and actually, in a law firm where you charge by the hour... It, isn't really appropriate to have trophies on the wall anyway. So if you go into the lobby of a hedge fund and you see Picasso on the wall, you know you've arrived at the right hedge fund because that's how they keep score. And down the road from us at one of our clients, UBS, they have this great palatial building on Broadgate Circle and they have a very blue chip art collection on the wall. And it reminds me that they're a lifestyle business and we're not. in the private banking world, I think it's, it's, a, it's fair to say it's a lifestyle business. Um, but we have this interesting little niche in collecting where we are supporting early creative output. And so it's, there's no great investment imperative when you are spending those low figures. You know, there's there's no way to get it wrong. So if you if you buy something and the artist disappears, then there's no, I mean it's not good for them. And and we love to see the artist push on and, and and go from strength to strength. But you know no one's going to hold anyone to account for buying the wrong thing. So that that's quite good as well. And it gives us an opportunity to be far sighted, which is you know in, we don't like to think of the art collection as being a branding tool. But when you go around and think, wow, a lot of these are now well known names, and they weren't at the time when Simmons Simmons bought them. And um, that's quite a good, quite a good thing to see. Yeah, but the, some of the works you you bought twenty years ago might now cost uh, millions. Yeah, there's a there's a there's a few. I mean, I mean, you you collected lots of YBAs, as you said. So you had a yeah, a Damien Hirst, Tracy Amin, uh, and many other Peter Doig, as you said. So your your collection is it has a a wealth. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes not as much as uh, some of the partners in the firm might think. I mean, th- there is the constant uh, tension with, with, with this kind of collection, which is, 
should we sell it or should we hold on to it? Yes, that was the next question. So <laughs> have you ever sold uh, any of the work? So is, is there something uh, moving in the secondary market? So I Because if you sell, for instance, one work, yeah. uh, you can buy for the next yes, 10 years. Yes, <laughs> yes. And, and plenty of people do make that point, which is that when one or two works are the unicorns that are worth a hundred times what you paid for them or even more than that, then there's an argument that says, well, actually, that's an outsized amount of equity to have in one work. And actually, you could support lots of early career artists with the proceeds of sale. Um, I like us to behave like a museum, which is to have an overwhelming presumption against deaccessioning. I think, well, there, there are several reasons for that. One is... The one sale we ever made was the Doig, because over a 10-year period between 1995 and 2005, um, that increase in value from £5,000, and we were made an offer of half a million pounds, um, and the partners had never seen anything like that trajectory, didn't know what it meant to have custodian responsibilities for a museum standard artwork. And, you know, all of our collection is shown in meeting rooms when coffee spills happen and chairs sometimes lean back onto the work you know these are the dangers of having work in a living environment and so the partners at the time decided that the responsible thing to do was to sell it um the, the buyer was the fine art fund one of the few art private investment funds that has that has done it and made money over the years and the reason they've made money is because they've done deals like this one because what they did was they took it to sotheby's six months later where it sold for a hammer price of over a million pounds. Right, so they doubled the amount of money they paid. Yeah, yeah. and now that work, it's it's Iron Hill, 1991. Go and look it up. Um, conservative estimate, I would say, about 15 million pounds today. Wow. So that's... <laughs> That's, that, uh, that's a very indicative of the art market. Of yeah, how I mean, can, some works can uh, skyrocket, and it's interesting to see it uh, feather on, John. Yes, it's indicative of a particular market superstar, and it is the um, it's the exception rather than the rule. But the, it, those things can happen. But as I say to people, we are always likely to be naive sellers because we are not art professionals, and so um, I say we're much better off to protect the integrity of the collection keep it together, keep the story that people want to come and see um, and not be involved in secondary markets at all. And so one thing that I want young artists to have confidence in now is that when they sell to us, we're not going to be um, interfering with their secondary market anytime in the next 15 years. Mm -hmm. So what was uh, the, the second track we, you chose, uh, John? second track was Under the Boardwalk by The Drifters. Mm -hmm. um, why did you choose this? And one? I only realised as a guest what it is to ask someone to choose six songs because you you asked me at a time when... Six to eight. Six to eight. <laughs> you asked me at a time when I was acutely aware and still am aware that I don't really have plans to see my family over Christmas for one reason or another. And so I, I was in a very nostalgic place, <laughs> predominantly thinking about the music that my parents listened to when I was young. And they were big fans of The Drifters. Um, that is a... Tremendous song about an amorous encounter in the dark under the boardwalk while the sun and the and people are ahead. And it's just um, a nice bit of escapism. Let's go to the next one, which is uh, Don McLean and Vincent. Um, and back on the art hour. Paint your palette blue and grey. Look out on a summer's day. With eyes that know the darkness in my soul Shadows on the hills 
Sketch the trees and the daffodils Catch the breeze and the winter chills In colors on the snowy linen land Now I understand What you tried to say to me How you suffered for your sanity How you tried to set them free They would not listen, they did not know how Perhaps they'll listen now Starry, starry night Flaming flowers that brightly blaze Swirling clouds in violet haze Reflect in Vincent's eyes of china blue Colors changing hue Morning fields of amber grain Weathered faces lined in pain Are soothed beneath the artist's loving hand Now I understand What you tried to say to me And how you suffered for your sanity And how you tried to set them free They would not listen, they did not know how Perhaps they'll listen now For they could not love you But still your love was true When no hope was left inside on that starry, starry night You took your life as lovers often do But I could have told you, Vincent This world was never meant for one as beautiful as you Starry, starry night Portraits hung in empty halls Frameless heads on nameless walls With eyes that watch the world and can't forget Like the strangers that you've met The ragged men in ragged clothes A silver thorn, a bloody rose Lie crushed and broken on virgin snow Now I think I know What you tried to say to me And how you suffered for your sanity And how you tried to set them free They would not listen They're not listening still Perhaps they never John, you have two dogs. <laughs> I do. The one called Vincent. One of whom is called Vincent after my favourite painter. And so, yes, he's very confused when I sing that song to him. <laughs> so your favourite painter is Vincent van Gogh? Well, I mean, it changes from week to week, but it certainly was when I was thinking about a name 
for mm-hmm. uh, for Vincent. Yeah, it's an unbearably saccharine song in many ways, but um, kind of irresistible as well, I think. Considering that uh, you are offices and basically the main decoration uh, for your offices is your art. Yes. Uh, does it mean that the majority of your uh, collection is painting or you also collect other media? Um, so I don't like the D word. I like to think that I'm not decorating. But um, but let's say let's say that is what we're doing. Um we, we, like most professional services firms, um, rent our building. You know, we pay by the square foot. Mm. And uh, that means that 3D work is unlikely. Um, and whenever we've tried sculpture, it has all kinds of different concerns about how you clean it and look after it and move around it. And so the practical reality is that most of our work is, most of our art is 2D art. So that painting, drawing, photographs. Um, we have some digital work. But again, the nature of the display in meeting rooms means that it has to do two things. It has to be there as a uh, a notable and noticeable collection, but it also has to be able to fade into the background when the focus is on something else, which is the business of the workplace. So, yeah, it's mainly mainly two. So you don't have any storage at all. Yeah, we have storage. We have a small um, art store over the years that I've been there. Um, but we've done several new hangs around the world and so we've more or less emptied the store which has been a bit of a project of mine anyway and even when we haven't had it in client facing areas I've hung it up backstage because you know actually artwork is generally safer on the wall than it is in a cramped storeroom have you ever exhibited your work out of Simons and Simons facility? So have yeah. you collaborated with uh, organizations to give the, the ability for people to engage, uh, to broader o- audience, not yeah. only your clients yeah. and we, yourself? So one thing that's, that, that's been a feature of the collection for years is that there's been an, a website, simmonscontemporary.com, with um, all the collection more or less on there. So that if anyone wants to research something or come and see something or or borrow something for an exhibition, then we would always do our best to facilitate that if possible. So you give loans? Yeah, we have done, yeah. We've mm-hmm. got a few things that, um, in particular that museums have asked for over the years for shows, uh, particularly in that YBA Such as? era. Um, well, in my time that we've loaned, we've loaned the Hervin Anderson painting out, but um, we've also got this great drawing that Michael Landy did um, mm-hmm. as a preparatory study for his breakdown work so we on this very show i can't remember when we interviewed michael landy about the time he destroyed all of his possessions Mm -hmm. and the nature of that artwork meant that there wasn't much left at the end of it um and he didn't keep the residue um in a in a vase in an ai way way sense so the, the drawings are some of the few things that exist as a signpost of that work in the world as well as the catalog he made of all his possessions so that that's a work that we've that we've lent out to museums before. Do you ask the artists that you have bought the work from uh, if you give a loan uh, to inform them or ask them uh, about exhibiting their work? Um, that's a good question. I'm now trying to think. Um, as a matter of course, I would say no. Um, obviously, as a custodian of the object you feel certain responsibilities and, and would never put the object into a context that you thought was wrong. Um, I, I can certainly imagine asking an artist whether they would welcome 
our lending the piece to an exhibition. But I, uh, now you mentioned it, I don't think it's something I've ever done. Mm-hmm. Before you mentioned that you, when you started, Stuart Evers, when he started collecting, he collected and he was consulted by Victoria Miro, Thomas Dane and Jay Jopling, um, the main emerging uh, dealers, uh, art dealers of that time. Uh, do you still work directly with uh, art galleries? You have art consultants or it's something that it's, it comes completely on you and uh, perhaps a colleague of yours uh, regarding the collection? Yeah, we, so the, the nature of what I was saying about our budget staying the same and the art world changing means that we, you know, we aren't often participating in um, in, in the in the gallery based market you know but we we sometimes do and um and quite often we'll buy so artists increasingly these days will consign works to particular shows that they're in and so quite often it's a case of buying something that's on consignment to a particular curator for a, a limited period of time but it and actually um one of the things that I try and say within Simmons and Simmons is it, it's it, it's not always the case that you're looking for the best deal and buying art in a way that completely cuts gallerists and curators out because obviously that's a very important part of that emerging ecosystem and so I, I you know I, I explain that it's a huge thing you can do for an artist for their relationship with curators and uh, emerging galleries to give them that sale through that channel because although it they'd give up 50% of the purchase price it's still a you know a very important thing for their progression that they are delivering those kind of sales to the people they work with mm-hmm. um okay sorry so apart from the art collection uh, and buying uh, art for artists, you also uh, the firm has uh, offers pro bono services um, so what are these services about and uh, what do you offer? I mean, which category of artists? Because I, I saw uh, in your uh, art collection um, website that you have uh, consulted um, Damon Hirst, Tracy Amin, Michael Landy. But for me, these were people who could afford pay a lawyer. So are there any criteria in offering pro bono services and to whom? Yeah, I mean, I wasn't around when those particular pieces of advice were given. Now, I think a a better description of what those instances were would be artists paying in kind for legal services. So not paying with cash, paying with artwork. So a, a notable example of that in our collection is our pink Trust Me Neon by Tracy Emin. And so we gave her advice on a lease. It was more convenient for her to pay with the artwork than with cash. Pay in kind. Pay in kind. And so, um, you know, I think on balance, we were on the right side of that deal and she probably prefers to pay cash these days. Um, But we do do pro bono work as well, which is a a different thing. And so anyone out there who is, um, it's not a word I like, but a creative looking for pro bono legal advice, one very good place for you to go is the Law for the Arts um, legal advice clinic run out of Queen Mary's University, London. And so something I do is supervise cases there. Um, So the idea is that the law students there take the interview, have the first go at at providing the advice, but I'm there as a supervisor to, to, to listen to the client 
describe their scenario and to make sure that the advice the student gives in the end is of the same quality that um, that people would get if they came directly to Simmons and Simmons and paid. So it's an amazing service, actually. Because it benefits many categories uh, apart from the artists. I mean, there's the law firm students, again, some experience dealing with some interesting cases. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Um, and it, it isn't just visual artists. It's people running small businesses of a different kind. You know, people might want advice on, on tr- getting trademarks for the first time. Or we get, you know, lots of my most interesting cases have come through. Does it include, for instance, music? So how far does it go? The, yeah, the I mean, spectrum of... Um, uh, yeah, it certainly includes music. It, and it's focused on intellectual property rights? Yes, or? it's primarily focused on intellectual property rights, but inevitably other commercial considerations and employment law and all other kinds of law will come into it as well. Let's go to Searching My Soul and back with uh, John Sapples and Simmons and Simmons.
Were you searching your soul, <laughs> John, when you were uh, as a teenager, when you were watching a TV series? <laughs> yeah, so that, that definitely takes me back to uh, late night Channel 4, aged about 13 or 14, um, watching Ali McBeal. And had you asked me at that time what my career ambitions were, I would have told you that I wanted to move to Boston and practice law there via Harvard Law, because that's what they all did in Ali McBeal. And uh, yeah, for many years, I thought that I'd one day want to live and work in America. And uh, now you could quadruple my salary and I wouldn't go there. <laughs> And uh, the way you were searching your soul is the same way you're searching for art? <laughs> I think that's a quite a tenuous link. Um, you know, I think I knew I was, I was going to be a lawyer before I knew I was going to be involved in art. Um, okay. Yeah. Because sometimes I think literally that you spend more hour, more time in the arts rather than uh, for your profession. Yeah, my, With my, all uh, these activities that you've been doing around that, apart from the Simmons and Simmons uh, network. Yeah, my, my boss sometimes thinks that as well. Um, it's one of those things. It's I, I'd say to people when they ask me this question that I would struggle to do my day job without the other outlets to maintain sanity. And so there's only so much working for banks and corporates that you can do without wanting to do something that relates to the outside world um, yeah, and for me that's art and it's become something of a second career more than as much as it is a hobby um, but yeah it's definitely difficult to balance so too. which are the criteria when choosing for work so how do you choose work for the collection how do you choose work well again people ask this and it's expecting that it's incredibly systematic um, but, oh, I don't know. It's, I mean, so the one of the things I think that... Um, I mean, it seems that it's kind of uh, uh, works from uh, graduates, yeah, mainly, well, uh, to a specific budget around the area you are. So we have a local factor. Yeah. We have a, a career level factor. Mm -hmm. So there are a couple of criteria already there. Yeah. Uh, mainly uh, painting because this is the, the main lead of the collection for one way or another. Yeah. So we already have three. Um... Yeah, although I definitely wouldn't go around saying we're only looking for painting, but um, I think we're looking for artists uh, who display a high level of conviction in what it is that they're doing. Okay, so I think that there isn't um, an easy way to describe the aesthetic of the collection. I don't think there is a coherent visual thread that runs from beginning to now. Um, although some of my colleagues sometimes complain that there is a bit of 1990s miserabilism that characterizes some of what we have. Um, but yeah, we're really, we're looking for artists who really mean it. You know, you can meet an artist and you, and you get a sense for whether it's a put on and whether they'd be making work if no one was watching, if they're making work because they have to make that work. Mm -hmm. That's exciting. And so I go around degree shows and Stuart goes around degree shows um, or art fairs around the world and, and essentially look for that, look for that conviction. And the art fairs, though, you don't meet uh, usually the artists uh, to be uh, convinced by. I mean, is an aspect of a personality or is, or, or is mainly the visual outcome? If it speaks to your soul, just I, like that. I think it has to be a bit of both. Um, and I think ours is a kind of slow collecting that does involve meeting artists. And partly that's because of how our collection 
lives within the business of the firm and so it's great for for the events that we put on or for client entertaining we do to to end, to bring an artist in to speak about their work because more often than not you know if you bring if you bring Goldman Sachs tax round for a tour of the Simmons collection they would they would much prefer to hear from a painter than 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 uh, hearing from me um because and this is something I say to young artists all the time that in that setting the power is all with them and they should remember that because they have the exotic aspirational life to these boring corporate people who produce nothing and they should use that and and understand and harness that power that that the bankers want to be them more than they want to be the bankers that's very true uh and i would like to derail the whole conversation okay <laughs> and go to the banksy case studies Oh, yes. So I will start with case studies. And uh, you once said that you consider Banksy to be one of the most studious uh, artists. Yes. Living artists. Uh, why yes, is that? I, I recognize that comment. Um, so I think Banksy is the polar opposite of what I'm just talking about, which is the artist that I'm interested in for whom um, art is comes from a real place and is an extension of that artist's life. Um, Banksy to me embodies so many of the worst. Do you consider Banksy as a as a one person or as a collective? Well, there you go. I mean, that's I mean <laughs> that's one even yeah. even the clue that we're talking about a guy who has the nickname like he's a you know a pub football team goalkeeper Banksy, without being a real person whose life you can connect to and whose origins you can think about and whose motivations you can get close to um i don't know the the anonymity thing just doesn't work for me and it the whole thing reads as just an appalling gimmick and when i think about what people say about the contemporary art world when they want to criticize it they want to say that the whole thing is gimmicky that it's a game for elites it's something that is rigged it's something that happens with highly choreographed market interference and so to see Sotheby's getting into the business of art cabaret and shredding artworks live for everyone to watch rather than an auction which is an you know an ancient and important method of selling things in an open way where everyone has the full opportunity to examine things and get a sense of what they're buying before they bid on it. Um, if you undermine that, then you just you, you undermine even further the idea that um, that art is something you can approach without being an insider. Wow. So we have so many issues uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, said here. I don't know where to start and where to finish. Um, so in ancient Greece, for instance, uh, the artists were usually remained anonymous because it was a public contribution. Yeah. And Banksy is a, he started as a, as a street artist. Mm -hmm. So he was speaking to broader audiences uh, without um, having anonymity, but without having an anonymity. So he had a tag, he had a name, but no one knows uh, exactly. So he created a myth, I have to say. Um, my opinion, my personal, I don't know if it's uh, of matter, is that uh, Banksy is uh, 
very good in marketing uh, <laughs> and promotional activities. But at the same time, maybe what he promotes, it has a definitely broader reach yeah. that goes out of this kind of elitist circle uh, of art. And um, his messages are quite socially uh, aware and concerned. Yeah, well, his messages are very easily digested and consumed um, in the same way as the public advertisements that he you know, partly seeks to parody, you know, to draw a parody with. Um, so for me to see him at Sotheby's, it was a betrayal. Yeah. Because I mean, he I'm entered all, in this elite mani- trying to manipulate it and further score his prices. I mean, I'm already bored of him before we get to Sotheby's. So as a guy who's... A, a, I get asked art law questions all the time and so if I had a pound for every time someone said to me oh what do you think about this difficult question about who owns a Banksy like is it the person who owns the building wall or is it Banksy himself or blah you know the local council or please for goodness sake it's so boring like you know the the first time he did it the first comment he ever made about um, public Public images and the and the extent to which that our attention is hijacked against our will, you know, that might have been an interesting point first time round. Um, but I, I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure I agree with your idea about um, you know ancient Greece artists being anonymous because they were just doing something for civic good. I mean, my idea of pre-Renaissance guilds and art practice was that people were essentially paid decorators and paid craftsmen and and you know so the idea of of signing your name to something um isn't the moment when civic duty falls away but it's 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 the moment where um where people can have some reasonable expectation of engaging with an individual artist and so yeah, I don't, I, I don't find the whole Banksy project of frustrating that dynamic. I don't find that convincing. Um, yeah. Let's go to Ella Fitzgerald and back uh, with John Shapples. After one whole quarter brandy, like a daisy, I'm awake with no bromo seltzer handy. I don't even shake Men are not a new sensation I've done pretty well, I think But this half-pint imitation Put me on the blink I'm wild again Beguiled again A simpering, whimpering child again Bewitched, bothered and bewildered Am I? Couldn't sleep and wouldn't sleep When love came told me I shouldn't sleep bewitched bothered and bewildered am I lost my heart but what of it 
was coming to you <laughs> <laughs> for uh, asking for pro bono services yes. um, would you for instance if he had if he was ending up having a dispute with Sotheby's and uh, the client who bought the shredded work mm. and if it was coming for you for pro bono services would you accept the case um, I mean it's difficult to see what cause of action he could have against Sotheby's. I mean, p- partly given that he agreed to do the whole thing with them in the first place. <laughs> but go on, Sotheby's, sue me, I dare you. Um, I mean, the people who should really be taking legal action here are maybe the underbidders. Everyone who underbid on this thing, as in bid before the winning bid, 
they bid on the information that Sotheby's gave them. But of course, that information was not complete. And so they want mm. to know the true value of this object that they're pursuing. And so because of that, um, you know, incomplete entry, shall we say, in the catalogue, that some people have suffered loss because... Um, but Banksy himself, yeah, sure, I'd, I'd work for Banksy in the right in the right circumstances, maybe not on pro bono basis, but um, everyone, even Banksy, deserves to have their case put as best it can be. So, um, yeah, absolutely, I wouldn't discriminate against him. That, that's a proper uh, legal ethos here. And uh, let's go to Jeff Koons. Okay. And yeah. uh, because you're specialized in intellectual property rights, and uh, appropriation is a very, very big thing. Yeah. Uh, which we see all the time with many artists, uh, and it's a very standard situation. Yes. Uh, and Jeff Koons is on the top of the game in terms of appropriation uh, in many cases. Yes. And uh, he recently uh, got a, a case, a fine of uh, 135,000 euros for copying um, an advert. Yeah. Uh, of uh, Naf Naf uh, in 1985. Yes, I know the case, yeah. Yes, uh, which, uh, and this work, uh, it was sold to the Prada Foundation for 2.8 million. So we got a fine of 135,000 uh, for a work that it was sold 2.8 million. Yes. I mean, uh, I want your comments on the case. <laughs> okay, so my first comment is how unbelievably illiterate even supposedly informed and mainstream press outlets are. So Freeze magazine, for example, said, announced Jeff Koons found guilty of plagiarism, um, which and so many other outlets followed that lead. And it's that's just such a ridiculous... That's the role of the media in it's general. Su- such yeah. a ridiculous <laughs> statement on so many levels. Okay. Like, firstly, let's look at the word plagiarism and what plagiarism is. So plagiarism is um, passing someone else's work off as your own and hoping no one else will notice. You know, we all, we all know what plagiarism is in relation to submitting an assignment or... Um, and that is absolutely not what's going on in appropriation art. You know, f- taking images from the world and treating them as found objects, making appropriation part of your practice. Um, even when that goes wrong and a court, a single court decides you have fallen the wrong side of the line on copyright infringement, in no world does it make sense to call that plagiarism as if you're, you know, you're trying to do this thing in secret. And that's just people, the same, you've got the same headlines when um, Luke Toymans was found by the commercial court in Antwerp to have um, plagiarised that um, photograph people said. And it's nonsense. You know, Luke Tormans is, is, is a painter who uses photography as source material. But he's, he's, he's not pretending that that image is his own um, and that he'd taken it himself. It just... Anyway, so play, that's the first... The language the main is... main point, yeah. Which is unbelievably um, unsophisticated mm. in using the language and found guilty of, you know, as if it was a crime... Yeah. Uh, the crime is plagiarism. I mean, according uh, but, to their line, it has consistency. plagiarism isn't a crime either. Copyright infringement isn't a crime. I mean, there are crimes associated with, um, I don't know, counterfeiting and things. But but getting it wrong and being um, having, it, having a, a finding of copyright infringement made against you is not something you can be found guilty of. So the language is ridiculous and unsophisticated and shows that we're not thinking properly about what being an appropriation artist means. 
And the reason why the likes of Coons and Richard Prince are important artists is because they tap into something that's so important to this zeitgeist, which is that when an image gets into the world, it has a circulation that you can't always control and becomes the kind of raw material that artists can play with in the same way as, you know, driftwood or anything else you might find lying around. Um, images are like that. And if artists can't use images from the world, how can an artist hold a mirror up to the world and show it how ridiculous it's being? And so that's why I love the Richard Prince Instagram series. And people... people have this visceral objection to the idea that you can screenshot someone else's Instagram profile, print it on a canvas, and then sell that thing for hundreds of thousands of dollars. And again, people use this incredibly unsophisticated language of theft, as if it's something that the original image maker um, could have done for themselves. Yeah, but Kunz definitely didn't credit the uh, guy who did the advert, the creative uh, director of uh, this advert. How would you credit someone on a on a sculpture? I mean, we all know that Kunz. Um, oh, sorry, that one, that was a painting, wasn't it? But we all know that Kunz takes material from commerce and the real world and uses it in his own work. Like, there's no sense in which anyone is deceived in thinking that um, every single image that Coons generates is original in some sense. Like We all know what he's doing, and, and he's doing something that the original maker has no access to at all. Like the, That NAF-NAF um, advert is not part of the fine art market and never could be. And so what economic harm is Coons doing by using it? Okay, that's a very good point. And I think we raised the same issue when we had Gavin Turk uh, as a guest regarding yeah. appropriation back in the past. That's the red line for me. If you harm the livelihood of another artist, of course, you deserve the law to come down on you. If you interfere with a market that someone else has and cut off an avenue for exploitation um, that another artist should be able to pursue, then absolutely, I hope that you get nailed for plagiarism or whatever other crime we can call it. But if what you're doing is repurposing something and recontextualizing something so comprehensively that um, it's transformed just by what you've done with it, then to me, that's an artistic act worth celebrating. Thank you very much, John. And now we'll go to Nessun Dorma uh, by the three tenors, uh, Luciano Pavarotti, Jose Carreras and Placido Domingo. And back with John Sharples. Okay. <laughs> Oh, for 
We definitely elevated our souls here with Nesundoma. That is my earliest musical memory. So I remember that being played over and over again during the coverage of Italia 90, the World Cup in Italy in 1990. And so I was uh, four years old then, and that is the earliest music I can remember. Yeah. Okay, and um, I will go to the very last uh, question, John Sapples, before we close and we go to Ave Maria from Steve Wonder. <laughs> and uh, if there was no limit in your budget at the Simons and Simos collection, uh, what, which work would you buy? Oh, wow. One work. I mean, one work, one artist. Bear in mind what I've already said about trophy hunting being the wrong thing for uh for our setting um oh god and I've, you know i'd hate so i'm very nervous about the fact that i run a private art collection that is not on public display and despite all my attempts to open it up i'm aware that it's not easily publicly accessible so i i wouldn't want to put anything of universal importance beyond the reach of the public forever so this is this is very difficult um yeah, I'm just, I'm, I... we exist to promote early career artists and give them that boost at the time when they really notice it. And so, you know, my, my ideal artwork is, is the, the artist who is going to go on and do great things, but right now needs a little bit of breathing space to buy materials and needs that nudge in prestige and, and, and record that comes with going into an important corporate collection. So I'm afraid I'm going to dodge your question completely and say it's <laughs> it's it's a work of that kind that I want on the walls of Simmons and Simmons, not, you know, something by Leonardo or something or Vincent. <laughs> Jonathan Chappels, um Thank you very much for being with us on the Art Hour. Thank you. It's been good to be back. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for listening. And uh, Ave Maria from Stevie Wonder. Have a nice day.